Hello and welcome to Draw, Lose or Draw. In this episode, we're going to take a look back at Partick Thistle's legendary 1921 Scottish Cup win with the help of club historian Graham Nisbet and Draw, Lose or Draw contributors Mark Wallace and David Forrest. First up, here's David Forrest talking about Thistle going into the 1921 season and Graham Nisbet listing the 18 names who played through the rounds of the Scottish Cup. Thistle in a real boom period at the time of the Cup. We had finished 13th in the league a season before, with only three points separating the teams in 10th and 16th by the end of the season. Despite being Murrow on East Fife in the first and second round of the 1920 Scottish Cup, Thistle had exited to Celtic at Parkhead in the third round, with Celtic also defeating us in the Glasgow Cup final that year. Thistle would soon find inspiration in the 1920 Scottish Cup final between Kilmarnock and Albion Rovers, with small clubs around the country watching on in wonder as two provincial teams clashed in the final, proving that it was possible. By the time the Cup rolled round for Thistle, they were third in the league, with Farhill being a fortress at this time. Thistle only lost once in 33 league games at Farhill, and that one defeat was two Rangers. It was an incredible 19-month run, spanning from the 10th of April 1920 to the 19th of November 1921, where we only lost one game. We actually we used a total of 18 players you know, during the campaign, but only three of them actually played in all the 11 games. If we have a look at the squad, for instance, um, we had two goalkeepers, Kenny Campbell, internationalist, and Rob Bernard, uh, who came in for one game. We used three fullbacks, Tom Crichton, Walter Bullock, and Willie Bullock, uh, the team captain. We only used four halfbacks, Joe Harris, Willie Hamilton, James McMullen, and Matthew Wilson. Uh, we used a total of nine forwards, and they changed on a, a regular basis at times. Johnny Blair, Jimmy Kinlock, David Johnson, John Bowie, Andy Kerr, Alex Lauder, Rab McFarlane, Willie Napoleon McMenemy, and Willie Salisbury. As we go through each of the, the rounds, in the games, you will see where some of these uh, people fit in and their contribution to the Scottish Cup games. This was first game was against Hibs in the second round at Easter Road. Well, we're, it's a change. We got a buy in the first round. The first round that we played in was the second round. It was at Easter Road on the 5th of February in front of a crowd of 32,000. The receipts in the day were about £1,400. Quite a bit of money in those days. At that time, I believe, was a record for Easter Road. Hibs had got into the second round, having played three games against Lanark in the first round. So, another story of three games in one round. The game got off to an exciting start with Walker of Hibs shooting just past the post, with Thistle responding with care been denied by the Hibs keeper Harper. Thistle took control of the game but failed to get shots and goal. Hibs came gradually into the game with the good cup football but failed to take their chances in the penalty box. There were many chances for both teams in both halves of the game but they both continued to fail to put the ball in the net. 
the Hibernian keeper really had a good performance during this tie. And Thistle's international goalkeeper, Kenny Campbell, was said to be outstanding throughout this match. Sadly, we didn't have any goals. Most of that was down to the solid defences by both sides, which was supported by both keepers. After a goalless draw, the teams returned to Firhill for a replay a few days later. These days, we are used to the midweek fixtures in miserable conditions, but even a hundred years ago, Thistle fans were bracing the elements. This was on a miserable wet Tuesday night on the 8th of February at Firhill. The crowd in the day was 25,000, with gate takings being about £855 down on the previous Saturday, but that was down to the miserable wet Glasgow night. Only one change from Saturday with Hibbs replacing Walker with Anderson. Anderson was quickly into action but snatched an early goal attempt and the Thistle defence were continually kept on their toes with Anderson in the early part of this game. Thistle, as they did at Easter Road, took the game to Hibbs. Throughout the first half, Hibbs were failing to get out of their own half. Kinlock and Care for Thistle had the best chances in the first half but the Hibs defence stood firm. Again in the second half, Kinloch and Kerr missed great opportunities. Hibs had only real one chance in the second half with Halligan, who was a bit lively for the Thistle defence and going close in goal. Once again, the game ended a nothing-nothing draw. It's quite astonishing thinking about the idea that we get 25,000 at Farhill. And it was a like a miserable Tuesday night. Yeah. I mean, I've been to many, many miserable Tuesday nights at, <laughs> at Far Hill, and it's it's, it's, ne- it's never an exciting po- prospect. So when you look out the window and you see the weather, so the idea that twenty five thousand people turned up to watch a game that had previously been nil nil is quite amazing. And the fact that they got another nil nil is just cruel. I think I think that's just <laughs> turning up for that weather on a miserable Tuesday night and then getting another nil nil is probably. It's very much something that will be uh, very. Uh, the Fiscal fans will be very. The terrible used to weather was not the only reason to stay home, as this game came on the tail of a depressing string of games without Thistle scoring. Mark Wallace and David Forrest discussed those goalless games. We lost one 0 to Hearts on the eighth of January. We drew 0 0 with Airdrie the week after. A week after that, we drew 0 0 with Hart. The week after that, we drew 0 0 with Albion Rovers, and then we had the two goalless draws with Hibs in the cup. And then followed up four days later by beating Martin 4-0. So, so, six, so six games with That is true. We did only concede one. So, you know, small mercies, you know. We're, we're, not, we're not shipping goals, but we're not scoring them either. After a second goalless game, some Hibs fans began to complain of a conspiracy as outlined in the Hibs history book. On that game... Uh, a number of years later, in the Hibs Historian book, it was quoted, We are told that near the end of the game at Fir Hill, a Maryhill tenement chimney caught fire, pouring heavy smoke into the faces of the Hibs team, hampering their play badly. The fire was no sooner put out when another chimney caught fire, and again causing heavy smoke to blow directly into the high bees' faces. Some paranoid Hibs supporters grumbled that it was a conspiracy. 
<laughs> there is a word before conspiracy, but it is not proper to put that in uh, nowadays. <laughs> Jesus, I mean, you get you get some amount of excuses for managers these days, but chimneys catching fire yeah. and blowing smoke into the faces is a new it, one. You for know, me. And years ago, if a chimney went fire in Firhill Road, it was said that Thistle would not get beat. It was a saying that. Spoiled me all my years going to Fur Hill. Uh, and when we've been getting beat 2 1, everybody was praying for a chimney, you know, back in the 50s and the 60s, you know. Um, you, you'd, be, you'd be phoning up your friends yeah. now when we're, we're nil down. Can you, can you get your chimney going fire for well, this? You know, <laughs> some, some people were saying that they threw, you know, the newspapers in just to. If they heard the thistle were getting beat, they threw them in the <laughs> chimney to see if they could set it in fire. As dedication to your team, that's like you know, that's like the the proto ultras setting off the pyro in the stadium. They've got people um, setting their chimneys in <laughs> fire to make smoke. <laughs> Before the tie, the Hibs director at the time made a bold prediction about the winners. The Hibs director Owen Brannigan he remarked that whoever won this tie would go on to win the Scottish Cup. He made that statement prior to one of the three games that we played against Hibs. Nostradamus-esque <laughs> uh, fortune-telling there. I mean, I think he was hoping that it was going to be Hibs would win it and Hibs would go on to win the Scottish Cup, but nevertheless, an accurate A second prediction. replay then took place a fortnight later at Celtic Park. It was actually held on a Tuesday afternoon at three o'clock, and again, there was 25,000 at the game. And the intake and the gate receipts were £1,100. It was told before the game that if the game ended in a draw, there would be another 30 minutes extra time played before that. So that was sorted out prior to the game. Brad McFarlane re- replaced the off-form Andy Kerr up front at centre-forward. The second change was Porthwick dropping out and Hamilton coming in to centre-half. That allowed Crichton to move to right back from centre-half. The play in the early part of this game was slow and not much happening throughout the pitch. In the first half, Hibbs had two chances from Patterson and Halligan, but both were well saved by Thistle's uh, Kenny Campbell. Thistle playing against the wind had chances from Kinlock, who ran the ball slowly into the keeper's hands for some reason. McFarlane then had a shot and goal, which hit the crossbar. In the second half, the wind increased and Thistle took advantage of this. The first with McFarlane shot being denied for offside, but the breakthrough came from a free kick, which McFarlane met with his head at the edge of the penalty box and put it in the back of the net. McFarlane could have made it too, but he had missed a penalty with minutes of the game to go. So after three games, 270 minutes of football, Thistle stroll into the third round of the Scottish Cup. With Hibs dispatched, it was on to the third round to face East Stirling. A lot of people uh, think that the game was played at First Park. Uh, some, some Thistle supporters will remember First Park, but I think they wouldn't remember Murchison Park. But first part didn't open till about the mid-August of 1921. And this game was played on the 19th of February. 
The crowd in the day was 8,000, and that was a record uh, for that ground, with only £400 being taken at the gate. Uh, prior to the game, Thistle asked East Stirlingshire to change the venue to Firhill in order that they could increase the gate money split between the two teams. But East Stirlingshire declined that, rather play them at their own park. Prior to the game, Thistle made a last-minute change. On the Friday, both teams had put the lineups out, which was quite common in those days. And Thistle, at the very last minute, their captain, Willie Bullock, was injured with uh, an ankle injury. And Bothwick, Watty Bothwick, took his place. Bullock is still in some of the team lineups when you look at some of the reports and some of the, the history stuff. Thistle took the game to East Stirlingshire with many chances coming from Kinloch, McFarlane and Salisbury. The first goal came in the 25th minute when McMenemy, with an elusive pass, found Kinloch to score. Following the goal, the Bainford club had very few chances in the first half. Mark Wallace details the Sunday Post report on the game. <laughs> Uh, the, the, on the Sunday post on the 20th of February 1921, they had three men carried off injured in this game and we still only won 2-1. It says, There seldom has been a team so unlucky in the history of the game as East Stirlingshire were at Bainsford yesterday. They fought Partick Thistle in stubborn fashion throughout the first half and but for the case of McMenemy's elusive passes which enabled Kinlock to score, they would have been on level terms at the interval. The second half started with Kinloch skying a shot over the bar. East Stirling almost equalised when Meany hit the Thistle crossbar. This year's 27-game season has brought many injury woes for Thistle, but it does not compare to East Stirling's depleted side in this game, who had to resort to some desperate tactics after two injuries on the 55-minute mark. With 10 minutes gone in the second half, a remarkable incident took place. Two East Stirlingshire players were carried off injured. Johnson had received a nasty knock on the forehead, whilst Meany was severely struck by the ball and became dazed and collapsed on the pitch. Afterwards, it was discovered they had concussion. The nine men Shire gallantly struggled for the next 35 minutes. Later on in the game, another East Stirlingshire man was stretched off. The first East Stirlingshire player came back on the park and stood out on the left wing, injured, just to take up space and have somebody mark him. What happened on a regular basis was if a player got taken off and he could still stand, he was put on the left wing. And that was just to occupy the full, the right backs attention you know that was the only reason he went out out there you know he couldn't run or anything but he was put back out in the park just to stand in that position on the wing to so that the the full back had to stay back rather than come forward it's just to take up the the attention of the full back that was all that was done uh, so that the the ten, you know, the eleventh man didn't. Um, but on, on numerous occasions, you know, 
you know, teams had to play with 10 men, but the, the person that was injured never took up the spot on the left wing. And it, it always seemed to be the left wing for some reason. I don't know why. But basically, East Lincolnshire had nine men. Even during that portion, the Bainsford clan missed not only a few scoring chances, notably when Shearer shot high over in front of McMullen, but more especially when Curry squared the ball instead of running in on goal, as he could have easily had scored. So, uh, naturally, we nearly made an arse of it. It was not surprising when uh, Jimmy Kinlock scored the second goal. Neil Wilson got a consolation goal for East Stirling near the end. Thistle made it tough on himself during this game against a very brave East Stirling nine men. I think it, it's very much a hallmark of Thistle in the Cup that if you look at, like, of course we would play against a sort of struggling minnows team and huff and puff our way to a win. I mean, like, you know, your, your sort of your Coulters and your Penny Cooks and stuff yeah. like that. We'll always play a team that realistically we, we should be the, the, the large favourites for and still make it a, a far more hassle for ourselves than it really needs to be on the way to getting to the uh, getting to the win. So especially when they're down to eight, nine men and having to put on an injured player just to take up space, just to try and cause a bit of friction, you'd think that, you know, that this would have been a... Uh, a, a route, but you know, in typical Thistle fashion, we kind of laboured yeah. our way to it. So. We seem to have laboured our way through, you know, the previous, you know, round as well, uh, with nothing, nothing draws and what have you. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I think it's a, a trait of this cup run, struggling to get through each game. I think this really encapsulates what it's like to be a Thistle fan. Like I think. Again, I, I go back to there will be someone who was at that East Stirling game watching us trying to fail to break down East Stirling before we, we, we got uh, up 2-1 and must be thinking, this team are shite. We are, we are, we're going to get beat by East Stirling. This is terrible. Like I can absolutely see that the spirit of being a Fistle fan is absolutely endemic and you, you absolutely would just fear the worst. Even in 1921, I could absolutely believe that. <laughs> I oh, like, I don't th- like it's my my take from reading the reports on this is like we've been at it for years. It's yes, like, it's like this that like this isn't this ain't new. We've been at it for more than a hundred years now. But I, I think that I think the funny thing about it is is that I don't I, I don't think if you asked many Thistle fans about the nineteen twenty one Cup run. Or us in 1921, they tell you, I we beat Rangers. Not many people went. It was 1-0, and we won the cup, and it was the only time that we won it. You look at it, and you realise, as you say, we've been at it for years. We went six games without scoring a goal. Right, to win the Scottish Cup, you need to win three games. It took us nine attempts to do it. <laughs> and the only two yeah. games we needed one attempt to do were against the non-league team and the best team in the country. If that's not... <laughs> like, if, like, it's that... Like at the moment we are we are we are a meme at the minute, whether it's the the arbitration stuff or all the rest of it. Like we are a living, breathing meme, and it's good to see that actually not much has changed drastically over a hundred years. 
We marched into the fourth round with Motherwell, the opponents lying in wait. It's Motherwell to play on the 5th of March at Fir Park. This was expected to create a record crowd at Motherwell. But the weather took its toll that day and it was a miserable day at Motherwell with only 20,000 turning up. We're saying only 20,000, but I don't know what crowd they were expecting, but they were expecting a record crowd there. And the gate receipts were quite low as well at £450. Motherwell had disposed of uh, Renton and Air United to make this fourth round tie. And I think in one of the games they actually had to play three games as well. It's not only taking the life out of us, it's taking the life out of every team that we play because they're having to play six-odd games uh, just to get knocked out. It's tough in on everyone. Game, our, uh, our captain, Walladula, come back into the cup team. And also, Motherwell's league goal scorer, Hugh Ferguson, was in the Motherwell team. Ferguson created Scottish goal-scoring records over these the two seasons. You know, in the 19, 20, 21, 22, see, you know, two years, created a, a phenomenal number of goals. Like Huey Ferguson scored in both ties we played with Motherwell in the, ne- in the, the next round. Huey Ferguson was so well uh, thought of at Motherwell that when he actually left Motherwell, the entire town's industries were given like the day off to like see him off to the train station and applaud him to the train station. It only took seven minutes for Ferguson to put Muller into a one 0 lead. It wasn't until the thirteenth minute that Thistle actually got a shot on Rundle's goal because Muller were controlling this game far better than we were on a sticky muddy pitch, which actually there is footage of that and all the highlights actually show Motherwell shooting into the Thistle goal. There was nothing on the Motherwell goal for some reason. Motherwell continued to control the game until Blair got the better of a throwback and laid the ball on the plate for McFarland to equalise. Thistle supporters, their roars had just died down when that man, Hugh Ferguson, fired a low shot in the Thistle net to give Motherwell a 2-1 lead. Salisbury surprised the Motherwell defence with some clever footwork and fired a low shot with the heavy ball into the net to give Thistle equaliser 2-2. Thistle actually nearly sneaked a winner and minutes to go with a scramble under the crossbar and Ruddle managed to get it clear. As I say, the game finished in a 2-2 draw with 22 exhausted, mud-covered players soaking wet on a miserable day in Motherwell. The Motherwell game's interesting. Motherwell finished above us in the league that season. We finished sixth in the in the league that season. Motherwell finished in fifth, two points ahead of us, and it's obviously still two points for a win. But Motherwell were developing into a really good team under John Hunter, who had won the Scottish Cup in 1910. Thistle and Motherwell went to a replay held at Fur Hill on the 8th of March. Again, another 25,000 crowd at Fur Hill. We get receipts of £750. Thistle were forced to make a few changes to the squad from the previous game, but in true Thistle fashion, there was an eccentric replacement waiting to step into the spotlight. Kenny Campbell, our international goalkeeper, uh, was injured 
and was replaced by Rab Bernard. Throughout Rab's career, he was quite a, a bit of a character, and he actually wrote a lot of stuff about himself in the press. He didn't need a reporter to write it for him. He, he seen me do it. And he was also nicknamed the Penalty King. Throughout his career, he was seemingly famous for penalties. He only scored one penalty for Thistle during his career. But similarly, he had scored another 47 for the different teams he had played in. The area that he lived in, I think it was Bowness. Thistle had the better with first half and plenty of chances in front of goal. Joan Bowie actually replaced McFarlane, who had scored the goal in the previous game. And this happened a couple of times during this cup run. The goal scorer was dropped from a previous tie uh, for some reason. Motherwell took control again following Jimmy McMenemy of Thistle being carried off with an injury, leaving Thistle under increasing pressure throughout the game. McMenemy returned to the field on the left wing, but was just a passenger there to take up the fullback's attention. Three good scoring opportunities arose in the first half with Salisbury, who missed badly, and Ferrier forcing Thistle keeper Bernard to make two great saves during the game. Once again, Thistle managed to get out of this game with 10 fit, fit men and a 0-0 draw, initiating another replay. At, at, at this point, you're... You, you you must you must be wondering like how how long is this going to go on for? How many replays are you going to get? You'd be glad of the extra well, time. Typical thistle style, we do things differently. Yeah, yeah. scraping by the skin of our teeth. A second and final replay a week later at Ibrox saw thistle finally advance. This was held at Ibrox on the fifteenth of March. The crowd was only sixteen thousand. Surprisingly, after. You know, having 25 in the midweek game. Presumably they were all just sick of going to replays over and over again. (laughs) Thistle were without their fullback, Tom Crichton, who was a a real regular fullback in the team. And also Jimmy McMenemy, because of the injury he picked up in the previous tie. Motherwell did not make any changes and went with the same team once again having prepared for the game down at Seamill, probably with a wee paddle in the, the sea and a walk along the sands or something. Motherwell took advantage of the wind in the first half, with Ferguson and Stewart pressing the thistle goal, only to find Campbell back in international form again. Thistle shrugged off pressure, and this allowed Blair to get one shot on the Motherwell goal followed by Kinloch with two excellent shots. The second half commenced with the wind behind Thistle after 15 minutes. Lauder opened the scoring with a fine low shot on goal. With only 12 minutes to play, McFarlane made it 2-0 at his second attempt. With two minutes to go, top goal scorer Hugh Ferguson scored from a penalty kick, making it 2-1. This was the second year that Thistle actually had knocked Murrow out of the Scottish Cup. They had did that in the season before as well. In the same way that we think of Celtic in the Cups every time, 
you know, I will just get uh, Motherwell must have just I oh, will get drawn against Thistle and get knocked out again uh, by like twenty two twenty three. Thistle started to pile up. Thistle lined up to face Hearts in the semi final. Thistle that was on the 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 first game at Ibrox was on the twenty sixth of uh, March with a crowd of thirty thousand and quite a substantial gate receipt of one thousand four hundred eighty four pound, which was a nice wee bit of money. Once again, Thistle changed their formation from the previous cup game. Crichton moving back to right back. Johnson moved from right back to centre forward, replacing goal scorer McFarlane. Once again, McFarlane in the previous cup game had scored the winning goal and he had been replaced in the next game. Hearts had come into the semi-final. They had disposed of Clyde. Hamilton and Celtic on the way. Conditions at Ibrox did not make it an entertaining game. The wind developed almost into a hurricane in the first half. It even blew the Rangers' flag right off its flagpole. I am not sure where it landed in Glasgow, but it was blown completely off the pole. Thistle controlled the whole of the first half with the wind behind them. With uh, goalkeeper Kane had an absolutely outstanding half with numerous saves and all sorts of trying to keep Thistle out in that half, especially when the wind was so fierce. In the second half, it was Hearts who took control with the wind behind them. But the Thistle defence held out, especially when Lockheed forced a shot to make Campbell save with a full-length save. Not an entertaining game due to the wind. And there wasn't much reported on that game. There wasn't an entertaining factor, but the Hearts goalkeeper certainly kept Hearts in the semi-final. After the hurricane winds of the first game, the weather would not brighten up for the replay again at Ibrox. Held on the 30th of March, when the teams returned to Ibrox for a 5.15 kickoff, again on a wet and windy night. This appears to be the tray of the many games that Thistle played in the Scottish Cup that year. Thistle lined up without their international left half, Jimmy McMullen, and brought in young Matt Wilson. Matt Wilson hadn't played in any of the Cup games. In fact, he hadn't played in a cup game that Thistle had participated in since he was signed. Hearts also made one change. W. Wilson was replaced by N. Wilson. That's Neil Wilson. Hearts, with the wind behind them in the first half, could not take advantage and played poorly throughout the game. Thistle had some good opportunities from several corners, but could not convert them into goals. In the second half, Hearts played better. Against the wind. Young Matt Wilson ended up with an injury in his first cup game. And Thistle had to play without him for 20 minutes of the game. 0-0 was the final score. With Thistle missing the mildest touch of Jimmy McMullen. While every fan wants to look back on their cup winning campaigns as playing sexy entertaining football. Mark Wallace explains that Thistle were not silky galacticals throughout this run. From reading the reports of the semi-final with Hearts, all three games absolutely stunk the joint out. 
the nil nil draw at Ibrox was apparently bogging. The replay, the replay was terrible, and the third game wasn't much better. The only difference was Thistle scored a couple of goals. Again, the more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> I love, I love the idea that the, the, even there's, in our there's a cons- days, even in our, our golden years, our 1921 when we won the Scottish Cup, this is real shite. Like I can't like. It, it was just unbearable to watch, and I kind of admire that. That even in our sort of moment of glory, we were still attritionally awful to watch. With Thistle playing their sixth replay of the campaign, the SFA then stepped in to try and ensure a winner. Go back to Ibrox for our third meeting in conditions that were actually described as fine. Now I don't know what fine was. If it was a light wind. Or it was just fine. But going by the standards of this uh, cup run, it means that it was heavy rain, <laughs> probably. Um, by based on the, the chimney smoke, the hurricane blowing flags off, and all that, it was just rain. They were happy, or it was just a wee bit nippy. But yeah, I don't imagine it was blazing sun. Put it that way. <laughs> From the Hearts Minutes book, I managed to find that the SFA had told Hearts that if the game ended in another draw, 30 minutes would be played extra time. If there was no decision had been arrived at that point, the game would be replayed the following day. And if that ended up in a draw, it would be played on the next days until a winner was found. So they would just keep going and, and until every day until that's someone actually yeah, won. Yeah, that's what was minuted in the Hearts Minutes book uh, from Jeez, the SFA. There's a morbid curiosity in me that kind of wishes it went to like six replays. <laughs> just to see what the, like, the seventh game would have been. Just remember <laughs> the absolutely knackered. Well, it would have helped with the Thistle finances at the time, certainly. But the cup run, uh, all these games fairly help Thistle out financially. Are you, are you telling me you wouldn't love to see them bring that shit back? Oh, Fucking, absolutely. No, I, just, no, I just keep playing again until somebody wins. Because like, here's another thing. that See, that 11 games in a cup run is a record. Third line-up did it in, 19, in, sorry, in 1878. And Vera Leaven did it in 1890. But neither of them won it. Thistle were the first team to win it. Hibs did it again in 1924. Obviously, they didn't win it. But the last team to do it were East Fife in 1938, and they did win it. And that was the last time a lower-tier team won the Cup before Hibs beat Rangers in 2016. Just goes to show that, like, we, we were the Iron Men that, that season. We, we stuck it out, and, like, we... Well, a lot of teams had been in that position and had fallen and cracked under the pressure. And the fact we're playing at like 26 games in the space of two months and 11 games in the cup, and then yeah, it, like we we still came through it and we took our yeah. opportunity. Hearts made several changes, which ended up was not the right decision for them because they didn't play really well. Thistle recalled McMullen into the team and Jimmy was back to his usual leader of the pack in midfield. Within 10 minutes, Lockheed the Hearts actually almost opened the scoring for Hearts. 
but it was after 193 minutes of the semi-final try that the deadlock was broken. Salisbury centred the ball to Kinlock, who put the ball past Kane into the Hearts net. Thistle continued to play good football throughout the remaining half. The second half did not favour Hearts, with Thistle continually pressing, with Blair hitting the upright and Salisbury shooting into the arms of Kane. With time running out in this second replay, it was Kinloch once again who put the ball into the Hearts net, ending Hearts' hope of reaching the final of the Scottish Cup. After 10 games of rain, wind, nil-nils and endless replays, Thistle had finally made it to the final, but constant fixtures was taking its toll on the squad, with Mark Wallace explaining here the astonishing number of games that Thistle played in the run-up to the final. We played Motherwell on the 5th of March, and the final was on the 16th of April, and in the league and the cup we played on March the 8th, the 12th, the 15th, the 19th, the 26th, the 28th, the 30th, and then the 2nd, 5th and 8th of April. Genuinely, like, a miracle. An absolute miracle. You talk about, you know, fixture congestion at the moment and McCall rotating sides for, like, you know, a game on Tuesday and a game on Saturday, and then you look yeah. at this and think, well, aye. Because this, we're also playing in, we were also playing in the Glasgow Cup and the Glasgow Charity Cup, while also fielding decent teams in the Scottish Alliance and the Scottish Second Eleven Cup. There was also like five aside games at sports days. Between we played Hibs in the Scottish Cup on the fifth of February, and from the fifth of February to the seventh of May, Thistle played twenty-seven fixtures in League Cup and Charity Cup. Twenty-seven. So that's what if you're talking. That's what ten weeks. That's two and a half a week plus a couple of extra here and there. And that's not only, the only like, the only time they got a break a mill in four days was between their last game before the final and the final when they had eight days between losing one out to Hamilton Ackies at Douglas Park and then playing the cup final with Rangers on the sixteenth. That that says a lot as well that um <laughs> our last game before the cup final in typical Thistle fashion we lost one out to Ackies because of course we did like as well, and you also had players playing for Scotland as well, like Kenny Campbell and uh, Jimmy McMullen were playing for Scotland internationals at that time. Uh, there was uh, like Jimmy McMenemy and Joe Harris uh, played for the Scottish League against the English League. Everybody was playing all the time, even when there's like like gaps of like days between fixtures, like. They were still playing even in the days in between them too. Like there was no concept of breaks or anything like that. Because and as well as that, these were guys that were probably working as well, like off the pitch. These are guys we are trade. After three semi-final ties at Ibrox and the final at Celtic Park, Thistle confirmed an interesting piece of trivia that will likely never be topped. Thistle played four games at Ibrox over the course of this, with Rangers only playing three. And they played a game against Green at Morton and two against Al Athletic at Ibrox. Similarly, Celtic only played one game at home after being drawn away in the early rounds, whereas we played two of the replay in the second round as well as the final. So Thistle, in fact, during this campaign, 
played more games at Ibrox than Rangers and more games at Celtic Park than Celtic. The match was played at Celtic Park. For some strange reason, the SFA decided to play the game there rather than at, ha- at Hamden. In those days, the, the home team on a neutral park were get, uh, whoever was alphabetically first. So Thistle were the actual home team that day because of a prior to R in the, the alphabet. So Thistle got that. Also, uh, Thistle got in early and wore, because they were the home team, they got to wear their dark blue top and Rangers had to change to a white top that day. Also an interesting thing that Thistle, throughout this campaign, if you look at all the other teams, we were the only team throughout the ties had a badge on our jersey. It wasn't until the later on in years that teams actually had badges on their jerseys. The 44th Scottish Cup final on Saturday the 16th of April 1921 was overshadowed by a labour crisis the day before entitled Black Friday. We contacted working class historian Daniel Baker and asked him to sum up what Black Friday was and why it affected the cup final. During the war, the ruling class it has to accept that the coal industry has to be taken into public ownership because, as we all know, and as history demonstrates, a free market is not going to provide adequate supplies in a world war. It's just not. Um, it, it's not able to do that. You have to put um, industry, at least to some extent, in, in the hands of national ownership. They're, they're forced to accept this. But obviously, after 1918, the, the owners of, of mines and the owners of industry are agitating for a return of that industry to private ownership. But in post-war Britain, um, you know, we look, you're looking at a society that has enormous, um, huge amounts of poverty, um, enormous social injustice, one of the many human consequences of, of that war finishing and, and you know, the um, huge amounts of working class men coming back home and pouring back into communities is that, um, you know, collectively people are becoming conscious of the enormous kind of um, human sacrifice that's taken place in every village, every town, every city. And a lot of these men are um, had, had come out of the pits to go to work and we're going back into the pits uh, to do work um, or... They might have never worked in the pits at all, probably more likely, but were looking for work when they came back in what was supposed to be, you know, Lloyd George's a land fit for heroes. So what you essentially get um, is an industry, um, like the, the mining industry, which is what we're talking about here, which is the heart of, of British capitalism. It employs 10 percent of the workforce. Um, that's about 550,000 men alone in, in the one industry. Part of what we're talking about here is the consequences of um, uh, transport workers, for example, and, and the um, the consequences on, on transport, the, the Cup final and, and Partick. What happens there is in the years previous, there's been something built up called the Triple Alliance, an alliance of, uh, of, of unions that would come out in support of each other. Um, um, on strike or, or that would agitate together um, for joint interests. So you've got the miners, the uh, the transport workers as well, and then you've also got um, the dockers as well. So that triple alliance actually numbers a quarter of a million workers. Um, so that's a hugely sort of potent weapon um, against bosses. Now, when uh, the miners um, uh, uh, go out on strike, that's basically because there's been a trade depression. There's been a slump in coal exports. The government basically formally um, says, to, says the mines have to go back into private ownership. As soon as that happens, the mine owners demand wage cuts. And in response to that, the, the Miners Federation of Great Britain calls on this triple alliance to engage in strike action and halt all the movement of coal. Um, so that's why the transport um, uh, union is involved in that as well. It's because it's part of that triple alliance in solidarity with the other unions that, um, you know, are all sort of connected in a network of industry. 
Um, and they are they are asked to go out on strike by the miners to halt the movement of coal. With the transport unions joining the miners in a show of solidarity, railways and trams were expected to be off on the day of the game. It's um, referred to as Black Friday, um, primarily um, from the perspective of the, of the labour movement and the workers' movement, because it was the day when the leaders of the transport and rail unions announced a decision to, to, um, to not call for strike action in support of, of the miners. The, the betrayal that occurs comes from the, the union leadership. Um, this is, um, uh, you know, the most radical calls, as usual, um, are from rank and file organisations who are doing things like forming councils of action that push for um, no um, uh, mediation whatsoever with the bosses, that the industry cannot go back into private ownership, um, but they are sold out by um, right wing presidents of their organisations who have access to power whose interest is to mediate with capital. Um, it's seen as a particularly dark day in, in, in British labour history because as a result of this, bosses and employers were basically able to launch um, uh, attacks on basically the entirety of the British working class. So by the end of 1921, six million workers had actually suffered from, from wage cuts as a consequence of um, how emboldened and confident employers felt um, 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 after Black Friday. That weekend, the transport in Glasgow was all supposed to be off. Their strike actually was cancelled on the Friday night about five o'clock. So it did have some bias towards a low gate with, surprisingly, gate receipt of £2,359, what the transport was on. It may sound a bit silly, the, the idea of a team from, you know, Maryhill and a team from Govan playing a final in Parkhead and the idea that the railways w- would impact that and that you would think there would be other ways you know, to go or whatever. But obviously, mm. at this time, um, in sort of 1921, you know, there isn't there isn't the great transport infrastructure there is now. Yeah, well, I was just going to say that another thing that comes in, in, in that is, well, first of all, the infrastructure is not, not as great. Um, and second of all, you know, that there's a couple of things happening here as well. Um, in terms of the way that information um, is disseminated and, and the news is disseminated, you know, it, it's it's not and it's still we're still at a time in history where it's not entirely unusual um, for people that haven't picked up that day's paper for whatever reason to be a little bit out of the loop by about 24 hours or so in terms of news. Right. Um, so if this news hasn't filtered through to certain people, they might have several presumptions. And one of them might be, well, the tra- from what, what we've heard, the transport union's probably going to go on strike. There'll be no transport tomorrow. The other, what, what I would sort of describe as, I guess, a, a sort of folk memory, uh, a political folk memory specific to Glasgow, you know, this is not not long at all, um, and really is actually sort of part of, um, for many historians, um, what you would call the, um, the you know, the, the Red Clydeside period um, um, from sort of 1917 to 1923. Um, and, you know, um, there was actually um, a, a previous incident, the Battle of George Square, which took place um, in 1919, just after the end of the First World War. And that was a full scale um, sort of violent confrontation that took place in the middle of the city of Glasgow, in, in, in George Square, between workers um, and, and police. So, you know, there is within very, 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 you know, recent living memory, there is uh, the spectre of workers organisation, workers going on strike and workers resistance being met with quite a lot of violence um, from from the police, mass imprisonments, violence on the streets on behalf of police cr- trying to crush strikers and, and, and crush workers. So that might have been in the back of people's minds as well. You know, they, they would have associated this was a time of high militancy. It's not like now where if someone says, oh, you know, if someone's going to go on strike, well, maybe the, maybe the metros won't run. These people would have associated strikes with, you know, um, quite violent reactions from the powers that be as well. And that might have played a part as well, I think. You plan to go to the cup final, but there's going to be strike action. The idea that even if you do get to the game, 
the idea of being in a big crowd like that as well. Yeah. Like even just going to the stadium and being in a big crowd, if the police are kicking about and there's sort of stuff kicking off in George Square, if they see a big crowd, you know, it, it's, it, it's entirely feasible that they could think, you know, strike action, whatever, yeah. and take it out on you as well, which I think is yeah. an under underplayed um, you know, and, I, and, factor about it. And, and these supporters are, you know, still the vast majority of them are, are working class as well, you know, and there will be memories within those communities um, of, of, of people that have been on the strike, that have been out on the streets, that have tried to agitate for better conditions and have been met with quite extreme violence. You know, this is predominantly still um, a, a, a very working class sport. Um, and that needs to be taken into consideration as well, I think, when you think about what sacrifices people are willing to make and maybe why some of them were a bit reticent to, to maybe go out to the game. That, on top of raising the price of tickets for the final from one shilling to two, meant that only 28,294 people turned up for the final when the previous season's final between Kelly and Albion Rovers had 95,000 people at Hamden. So like, there's, there's a lot of really strange factors at play. While a one shilling increase may seem like nothing compared to the ticket prices these days, that, amongst other factors, saw enough fans stay away to see it forever dubbed the boycott final. We we sort of think of um, you know the, uh, the the gentrification of football um, and the the increase in prices and the pricing out of a certain section of uh, of fans and, and, I, and I speak as a fan that is you know pretty much I mean partly because I live um, in a different city to the one that my team plays in but even if I did want to travel it'd be such an enormous expense that um, it's it's on my way just not really possible to go and see my team play um, but you know these arguments and these um, debates and these um, kind of um, disgruntlements with the way that the everyday rank and file fan that goes to a football match has been treated in terms of price gouging in terms of like you know being expected to have to be herded into unsafe conditions these have actually been things that have been more or less constant um throughout the uh, the, the history of football there's a fantastic um enormous doorstop book uh, by a guy called david goldblatt um, which is called the ball is round and it's a, a global history of football um and he actually talks quite a lot about this and, and goes quite um, in, into the specifics in early chapters about how this specifically affected the scottish game as well um but yeah you know there's no doubt that um you know it might just seem like one shilling but it's still a double in price and for an awful lot of people that are being affected by um you know having to work in these industries which have been on uh, which have been trying to go on strike to improve their conditions conditions are are tough and that would i, I would have i would certainly have bought that i think if i was a fan in, in those days black friday uh, this is this is a good example i think uh, that, that you bring it up on this podcast of that black friday wasn't merely an industrial political dispute you know um, it, 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 especially in places like glasgow that rely on industries like shipyards um and like you know outside of uh, of the glasgow area further afield like the, the mining industries um you know this was something that impacted the the cultural and social life it wasn't just a little political you know minor political dispute this was on an enormous scale that involved huge amounts of the scottish working class and Football being the Scot- you know, the, the, the game of the Scottish working class of choice, um, I think it's quite an interesting prism that, uh, uh, to look at this incident in history through. And I think um, certainly, you know, the, the, the prices, the fear of perhaps being on the streets would have definitely impacted the, uh, the cup final that you're discussing. Despite the transport issues, the threat of police violence and the rising prices, two generations of Graham Nisbet's family managed to make their way to the game. My father and grandfather uh, managed to make it to Parkhead. As far as I know, they got the number nine tram car from at the corner of the Barton Road and Merlin Street at Peel Street and took it out to the east end of the city. Uh, it must have been quite an expensive day for my dad and my grandfather, uh, having to pay something like three shillings 
rather than one one shilling and sixpence. It's hard enough to get people to spend money for like if it's a an old firm game these days, it's an extra like four pounds or something like that. So I can imagine back in the day going from one shilling to two or three shillings would absolutely to cut you out. I would, there's also I no no doubt there'll be Fissile fans or Rangers fans who've looked at the previous results and thought this will go to about four replays. I don't need to go to this one. <laughs> Um, I'll go to the one. I'll go to the one next Tuesday. Um, at that point, because yeah, like I can only imagine if you're a Fistle fan going to ten, ten games up to that round, you there would be no chance that you would expect it to, to end on that day. But yeah, um, yeah, it's a shame that it's a surprisingly low turnout. I'm sure there'll be a lot of people around at that time, a lot of Fistle fans who will kind of kick themselves. For not paying the extra shilling uh, to see their team win the cup, but you know, as, as a Thistle fan going into the game, it would be reasonable to expect a degree of cynicism about our chances, especially against a formidable Rangers side. I think you would you would not expect to win, but you would sort of hope for an off day, and for, that's pretty much what happened, because the the way we got to that cup final. You'd be pretty billing if you didn't win it. For context, Rangers' record in the league that season played 42, won 35, drew 6, lost 1. Scored 94 goals, conceded 24. They won the league by 10 points in a 2 points for a win season, which is extremely difficult to do. The only team that beat them were Celtic, who finished 2nd. Thistle didn't score a goal against them in the league. They lost 2-0 and 3-0 to them. This was Bill Struth's first season in charge of Rangers. And uh, William Wilton had died in a boating accident in the summer. And Struth had been his assistant. So he took over. And they were in a bit of transition. Like Celtic were the dominant team in Scotland just before the war. Unlike sort of during. Rangers hadn't won the Scottish Cup since 1903. They went 18 years without winning cup. They only won the cup four times when we played them in 1921. Like they would eventually win it in 1927. They beat Celtic 4-0, but like they had gone 25 years without winning the cup by that point, and they would win it again in 1930 when they beat us in the final again. It's this period in the sort of nine in a row. Uh, in the 90s that really puts Rangers that wee bit over the top of Celtic in the all-time league titles. So it's like this sort of period, because they were really good in the, the 1920s and 1930s. Rangers front four in the final are revered at Ibrox to this day, with 500 goals between them in their time at the club. The, the Rangers team is... like One thing you can tell by Wikipedia when you look at it, all the Rangers players have articles. Four of our players don't, and our manager doesn't. We've like yeah, that's all, Tom Tom Crichton, Matt Wilson, Walter Borthwick, and David Johnson do not have articles on Wikipedia, and neither does George Easton. Whereas the entire Rangers team and manager do. One of the like right half for Rangers in this final was Davy Meikle John, who went on to manage Thistle for nearly ten years. Rangers team, as you, as you say, was quite formidable with Rob Manderston, McCandless, Michael John, Dixon, Bowie the captain, Archibald, not our Archie, but Archibald, Cunningham, Henderson, Cairns and Morton. 
quite a formidable team. Rangers' attack at that time, right, was imperious. Their front four was Andy Cunningham, Tommy Cairns, Jordy Henderson and Alan Morton. Alan Morton's one of the best players to ever, ever lace up a player, a pair of boots in Scotland. See at Ibrooks when you look at the marble staircase, there is a giant portrait of Alan Morton at the top of those stairs. Alan Morton is considered one of Rangers' best ever players. Andy Cunningham played inside right for Rangers in that final, scored 162 goals in 350 games for Rangers. He got 12 caps for Scotland, scored five goals. Jordy Henderson scored 123 goals in 170 games for Rangers. Tommy Cairns, 138 goals for Rangers in 407 games. Eight caps for Scotland, one goal. And then you've got Alan Morton, who played 382 games for Rangers and scored 83 goals. 31 caps for Scotland, five goals. I am... we stand a great mass, isn't you letting me down? But that front four, that's what, 500 goals? Yeah. Between like, the front four? But like, yeah. <laughs> like... Alan Morton was one of the Wembley Wizards in 1928, who were captained by Jimmy McMullen, who didn't play in this game because he was injured. It's very easy to take the mick with Rangers and their uh, portrait of the Queen in the dressing room and all that, and all that stuff. But like this was very verified Scottish football royalty we were up against. Oh. We had a couple of Scotland caps in our team, but like, like right, like right back they had Bert Manderson who was Irish. Like three hundred and seventy games for Rangers in thirteen years between nineteen fourteen and nineteen twenty seven. Davy Meeklejohn, who I mentioned, went on to manage Thistle between nineteen forty seven and nineteen fifty nine. Uh, he played 490 games for Rangers and scored 42 goals. He was a centre-half. And, and I think as well, it's obviously, it's, it sounds a bit strange when you hear these players when they're like two cats of Scotland. You also have to remember that this time, Scotland won to play in Macedonia and the Faroe Islands in no, the qualifiers at Hampton. It was very, difficult, very difficult to get games, to, like, very difficult to get capped for Scotland. That Rangers team was good. They didn't really start winning until like the mid twenties, late the mid to late twenties, like tw- from like nineteen twenty eight through to like the beginning of mm-hmm. the Second World War. They were like Rangers were unquestionably the best team in Scotland. So like even though they've got all these guys scoring all these goals, they're still not even that. <laughs> that I say that good. And this is also at the time when Jimmy McGrory was playing for Celtic and he put up 500 goals, 600 goals in his time at Celtic. It was a, it was a time for for goal scoring like no other. We've all heard about people giving their children 11 middle names in honour of the Lisbon Lions or the England 1966 World Cup winning team. So here's Graham Nisbet to run through the squad members. You need to fill out that birth certificate. This all lined up with Campbell, Crichton, Bullock. Harris, Wilson, Bothwick, Blair, Kinlock, Johnson, McMenemy and Salisbury. The teams were again announced Friday prior to the game and on the Saturday morning, just prior to the game, there was a shock in the Thistle team because Thistle lost their international left half, Jimmy McMullen, through injury. I think he had actually picked up a knock in a international game and also Bill Hamilton the stalwart of the Thistle defence was also replaced 
And Thistle brought in Borthwick instead of McMullen. Now, Borthwick has been playing full-back and he's now moved into left half. Despite the addition of Borthwick, it was the other change which stood out, with ageing veteran Jimmy McMenemy stepping in for Willie Hamilton. Willie Hamilton wasn't well and he, he actually died in August, September of 1921. He was only 31 years old. Jimmy McMullen was injured playing for Scotland against England the week of the final. So Walter Borthwick and J- uh, Jimmy McMenemy came in. Jimmy McMenemy was 40 years old. He was signed by Willie Malay for Celtic in 1902. He had won 11 league titles in six Scottish Cups with Celtic. It is genuinely like Scott Brown pitching up at Fur Hill next year. It is the only way I could equate it. Like If Scott Brown like, left his player coach and rolled at Aberdeen to pitch up at Thistle as a player coach, it's the only way I could describe it. Surely he must be one of, if not the oldest person to win the Scottish Cup. Well, at 40. He must be. I think he is. I'm not sure. There might be someone older. But like Jimmy McMenemy's story in itself is wild. I mean, she, like, he signed for Thistle in the summer of 1920 after 18 years at Celtic. And he played on for another two years. He made 56 appearances for Thistle in three years. His nickname was Napoleon. I think he was Celtic captain, which is probably understandable. So like, he was called Napoleon because of his like his tactical mind and his leadership qualities. It, it just goes to show you just how big an achievement it was. If somebody well, it said was, to you, it was, like, it was an astonishing achievement. McMenny was something else. When you read his career with when he was with Celtic, it was phenomenal, and his international career was. Phenomenal as well. Uh, absolutely unbelievable player. Especially, you know, he spent two seasons at Thistle and he was absolutely brilliant. So he was with Thistle. The Kenny Miller before he was Kenny Miller, 40 years old, playing for yeah, Patrick Thistle. McManamy was a different player. He was, he was a football player. <laughs> he was something. On the morning of the game, with key players pulling out through injury and the mammoth task at hand, you would be forgiven for expecting the Thistle dressing room to be full of nerves. If anything, the opposite was true. There was a reporter who was in the pavilion at Parkhead at the time. He visited both teams' dressing room before the game. He found the Rangers players strangely silent and worried. There was a tenseness about the atmosphere akin to one in the home of the bereaved. In contrast, uh, in the Thistle dressing room, it was more striking with everybody laughing and happy. There's a bit a bit on it, it says, The kind man of White Inch puffed away on tobacco whilst joking with two of the young 11-hour replacements for Bothwick and Wilson. Alec Lister, uh, Thistle's trainer at the time, frowned on the tobacco sinner whilst giving encouraging words to the boys on what was said to be a forlong hope of a game. So the Mooton and dressing rooms were upbeat for Thistle, and Rangers seemed to be having a wee worry. I don't know why they had that, having scored 98 goals previously, uh, and we had so many nil-nil draws. It must be down to the idea that Obviously, Rangers have been imperious the whole season. There's, there's not really any pressure on Thistle to win this game. 
Because everyone is at, well, Rangers have scored 98 goals this season. They've lost once. There's no chance that Fissel will win it. And I think Fissel knew that. I think Fissel knew that nobody was backing them. But, uh, and they, they, they were kind of just laughing and joking, play the way that they play, and they, you know, it might they do their best and see what happens. And I think very similar to the 1971 final, I think as David McParland said, that they just didn't realise we could play football until it was too late. And I think maybe that, that maybe Rangers were a bit similar yeah. and that they knew all the pressure was in them. And Fissel knew that they could play and they just had to play their game. And they played their game and obviously it worked mm-hmm. out. I would say, though, it's a rare occasion where if you said to somebody, there are two dressing rooms, there are Patrick Fissel and the opposition, which dressing room is filled with a sense of worry um, akin to someone who has been bereaved? Everyone would say it would be the Patrick Fissel dressing room. In addition room. to the roving reporter in the dressing rooms, there was another notable figure writing his thoughts for the press. Another thing you'll never get uh, now is um, <laughs> in the Sunday Post the day after the final, the 17th of April, Willie Malay, the Celtic manager, had a full-page spread covering the final. That would never happen now. Could you, you imagine? imagine? <laughs> could you imagine Celtic playing Thistle in the cup final and Steven Gerrard doing an entire analysis of the game of John Kennedy for Celtic versus for Rangers versus Thistle? Just wouldn't happen. No, like, and, and the, the mainstream media bias coming out again. Yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here reading it right now, and it says, My heartiest congratulations must go to Partick Thistle. Never at any time has the Firhill team been a strong fancy of mine in the cup ties, and whilst it will always tickle the sporting palate to see the giants of the game go under, I was not one of those who seriously considered that the Rangers would be ousted by the Thistle in the Scottish Cup final. Willie Malay says that Rangers beat themselves. I don't think there's much wrong with it because the the way it's the way the game seems to have pa- played out from reading this report as well as other ones is that Rangers tried to walk the ball into the net too often against us and we countered with our one good chance and scored. During the first twenty minutes of the game, the highly fancy Rangers team controlled all the possession of the ball throughout the pitch, which you would expect. Rangers opened with two powerful shots by Archibald and Cunningham, which were blocked by the Thistle fullbacks Crichton and Bullock. For all their possession, Rangers failed to break down the Thistle defence. This was down to Rangers playing too close and playing too many high balls that the Thistle defence clearly dealt with. Inside left, Tommy Cairns missed another great scoring chance following a cross from Michael John. Rangers huffed and puffed, but they couldn't break the Thistle House down, as the Jags found themselves with the opportunity to write themselves into the history books when a wardrobe malfunction left winger John Blair unmarked. Considering all the pressure by Rangers, Thistle's defence took great credit for the resolution and unflinching defence required to combat the attacks of the Rangers forwards. Saying that, Kenny Campbell's goal was not seriously tested, although he showed great confidence and judgment in the first half. Rangers at this period of the game seemed to be lacking confidence in most of the play, which sounds out to what happened in the dressing room before it. Their captain, Bowie, at this point of the game, decided to take the opportunity to return to the pavilion to change his shorts as the the elastic had broken in them. In those days, they had to go off to change their 
if their chairs had got torn, it wasn't a matter of going to the sideline. They actually had to get into the pavilion. Uh, they were classed as exposing themselves, I think. <laughs> so they had to get into the pavilion to change. And one thing, you don't let Johnny Blair loose, you know, on the wing with nobody going to tackle him. In Malay's report, unmarked, the Partick Thistle winger had ample time in which to take aim. He did so effectually, scoring with a shot which, to my thinking, should have been saved. By the way, it was rather remarkable that the score took place when Bowie was off the field for one minute in order to change a torn jersey. So there you have like, Rangers' uh, James Bowie like, at left half, an imperious player in his own right. Like he's get, James Bowie would only get two caps for Scotland and uh, he played nearly 300 games for Rangers, scoring 62 times. He tears his jersey and as a defender as well. Off the park for one minute, and the guys meant to be marking scores. Reports at the time of the game gave two different versions of the move leading to the player receiving the ball. One report said there was a long ball sent into the goal area from left back Bothwick, which was left by Kinloch who had seen Blair, that Blair was in a better position. Blair anticipated the dummy by Kinlock and drove the ball into the net before his opponent could tackle. But there was another report. A second report said that it was McMenemy passed the ball to Wally Salisbury on the wing, who crossed the ball to the incoming Blair on the 18-yard line, who then shot and put the ball past Rob in the Rangers' goal. So we've got two different reports on the goal, believe it or not. The only part of the reports that can be confirmed is that Blair scored the goal. It says a lot that um, the, the, the defining goal, probably one of the, what, three, four, five biggest goals in party Fiscal's history. And we don't know what happened because <laughs> there's two different yeah, reports. Yeah, we, we, we always say some of these reporters are not at the games right enough, you know. <laughs> Thistle managed to grind out the result, remaining defensively solid and confirm their status as Scottish Cup winners for the first and sadly only time to date. We had a couple of opportunities. Thistle could have doubled their lead when Salisbury hurriedly produced a low shot only for the Rangers keeper to get down and save. Kinlow got you know, behind the Rangers defence quite a few times. Just before half time, there was an infringement on a thistle forward in the Rangers penalty area, but the referee just waved that away. The incident involved Jimmy Kinlock, who went to meet the ball from the wing and got into a clear scoring position, only to be held by the Rangers keeper. It was clearly an infringement which denied Thistle a penalty. But the second half was basically Thistle got themselves organised defensively, like they had done in the previous different rounds of the competition. The defence was solid, and in the final, the defence was immaculate. Thistle only scored 10 goals, you know, in the whole Scottish Cup competition. Um, and the only... Concede, and they conceded four goals. So, probably not bad, but 
to go through 11 games, it's less than one goal a game, you know, to win the Scottish Cup. I would definitely say, you obviously talk about the defence and about how well they played in the final. I, I would argue this cup is built on that defence. Yeah. That without without that defence, there's no chance. No, you, we wouldn't have. We would have won you it. know, you had Kenny Campbell in goal. Now Kenny Campbell, and I think three three of the ties. You know, it was him that stopped us getting beaten. You know those games. You know at Hibs, at Motherwell, he pulled off a tremendous save in the, against Hearts as well. So the defence. The, the two fullbacks were just like so. The captain, uh, Bullock, he hardly missed a, a game during his career with Partick Thistle. He just did not miss games. And he was unfortunate not to play in 11 of the games. He was quite a bit of a player, so he was. While modern day cup finals conjure up images of club legends and captains lifting the cup to the adoring crowd and the team celebrating on the pitch, Things were a little different in 1921. The cup wasn't actually presented to the team after the game. The cup presentation took place in the Celtic Pavilion and it was presented to T.C. Reid, the Thistle chairman, who accepted the cup on behalf of the Partick Thistle team. Ward, one of the Thistle directors, he replied following the Rangers' response to Thistle. Uh, There was like formal speeches after it. And he commented something like, uh, everybody was prophesizing that Thistle would get beat in each of the rounds of this cup. He said he was heartily gladdened that Thistle had confounded the profits during their campaign. The players never got to celebrate on the park with the cup, as far as I know. I haven't seen anything documented anywhere to say that. But, you know, it was quite a... Fam- you know, formidable accomplishment that Thistle had done. At the end of the game, for instance, there was a mad scramble amongst the Thistle players uh, to get the match ball. And it was actually the oldest man in the park at 40, Jimmy McManamy, managed to walk off with the match ball. Uh, So he got that. um, And McManamy picked up his seventh cup finalist winner's medal. The 1921 cup final made headlines yet again last year when McMenemy's medal showed up for sale at auction. There was quite a bit of interest in it because it was Jimmy McMenemy. A lot of Celtic uh, people with buy medals up. I think Wally Hawkey was a... He used to go to the auctions and buy nearly every medal that a Celtic player it was up for auction, but this time it went to a thistle man. Um, I was speaking to Robert McFarlane's son last week, and he actually has Robert's cup final medal at home. So that's another one that we know has appeared. His son has the cup medal. So that's a second one that we know of is still in existence. Here are Mark Wallace and David Forrest to give the final words on Thistle's 1921 Cup run. That Cup final, like, I, I, it's, I don't really know how else to really term it. It's the miracle on ice, it's the game of their lives, it's North Korea beating Italy, it's America beating England. 
1950 World Cup. It's 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 all of those. It's got elements of all of those for me. It has elements of everything. I think any any cup upset's got to have. There's got to be something that makes it seem impossible. The moment when he gets his, his shirt ripped off and has to go off, and then immediately we go and score because that guy who is marking him is off. Yeah. I, I can't I can't kind of sum up what sort of feelings you would feel if you were a Fiscal fan going to that at that, that very moment of just your one chance and you take it and that's it. And I, I don't... Obviously, like the 4-1, obviously you'd love to see his 4-0 up against Celtic at half-time. Who wouldn't? We'd obviously steam in by the time the second half started. But there's a, a great deal of romance and being under the cost the whole game having one shot and actually taking a rare chance. In summary, Partick Thistle played 11 matches in the Scottish Cup en route to winning it, needing nine attempts to win three matches. They were without two of their best players and had to call on a 40-year-old they'd signed, glittery CV or otherwise, and they beat the best team in the country who only lost one game in the league all season out of 42. If that isn't a Perry Partick Thistle way of getting things done, I don't know what is. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Draw, Lose or Draw. We hope you've enjoyed it. It was narrated by myself, Matt Greer, and edited by David Forrest, with contributions from Graham Nisbet, Mark Wallace, David Forrest and Daniel Baker. Thanks to Brian Welsh at Partick Thistle for all his help with putting this episode together. You can find in the podcast description information on the club's celebrations of the 1921 Cup Final, as well as our own Mark Wallace's article on the game. You can also find out more information about Draw, Lose or Draw in the podcast description. Find us on Twitter at Draw, Lose or Draw and on Facebook. As always, thanks for listening, stay safe and wear a mask. <laughs>